Welcome to No Small Jobs, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, make sure that you uh, rate and review us wherever you get your good podcasts. We can be found on Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, a whole bunch of them. Uh, rating and reviewing will increase uh, the spread so more people can discover the joy that comes from listening to this podcast. Um, make sure you follow us on various socials. That is Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The handle is at No Small Jobs Pod, uh, where we have regular news posting, little clips of previous shows, um, and other little social media things that I'm still kind of learning about. Uh, so today's guest is Rowan. Rowan is a renewable energy public servant. Hey, Rowan, thanks for joining us. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Good, good, good. So, what is a renewable energy public servant? Well, uh, right now I'm uh, serving as a public servant, but uh, I'm part of a team that's bringing forward renewable energy development in the state. So working with project developers and uh, finding ways to incentivize investment in large-scale renewable energy projects. Uh, have you got any major projects you can talk about or any particular things you're trying to promote? Um, yeah, so I work in a team that... Um, works with the Renewable Certificate Purchasing Initiative, which brings forward about $750 million worth of investment in new large-scale projects in Victoria. So these are four huge projects that are located in regional Victoria, which brings forward uh, job opportunities and also helps green the grid, um, puts forward more renewable energy into that into that grid and, and ideally lowers electricity su- supply, uh, uh, the cost of electricity, and also... Um, helps us reach our sort of renewable energy target, which is the the broad um, policy space which we're working in. I mean, and obviously, of course, climate change is the big issue of our time. So it is really valuable, really, really valuable that you exist for one thing, but also that um, there is a push for this to happen. Are we? Uh, so uh, you, it sounds like you're working on a much larger scale, like with companies and such. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I'm, I guess. That's probably my main interest in in working in this space, particularly is is solving that climate change problem. Um, and I found after leaving uni, a lot of the a lot of the work that you can do to solve big problems is in the political space, whether it's in the public sector or in, in politics more generally. Okay. So what uh, what brought you to this job? Um, well, I've been eyeing off a job in Melbourne. So I was previously working in Canberra. Um, I was working uh, a couple of couple of different roles, but one of them was directly in the Commonwealth level of government, um, advising policymakers and and um, politicians on environmental and energy related topics. Um, and I was really keen to be closer closer to the action. So when when you're working in in the Commonwealth level of government, you don't really get to have a hands on. You know, you're you're, you're quite detached from from the real projects. So when you work in in a state where projects are being developed and, and built, you get you get a little bit closer to the action and you get to see see the projects sort of more up up, up close and, and get yeah really personal with with what you're working on. Are there any particular things that you are proud of having achieved? Yeah, definitely. So I I mean one of the biggest um, things that keeps me motivated in my job when you're doing the more business as usual things, you know, the, the paperwork and so on. I, I keep reminding myself that the, the work that I do really enables other people to have jobs in whether it's building wind turbines, um, installing solar panels or just those local communities where the projects exist. So all the people that come and work on these projects 
you know, visiting local stores and and spending their money in the, in the local community as well and keeping them keeping them alive. Uh, and of, as you said, you mentioned you predominantly work in the regional space. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, I, I work out of the city, but the projects that we support and work with and the developers, um, they build their projects out in regional Victoria. Um, where there is lots of uh, wind and lots of sun resources and lots of space to to put these these big projects. So, um, you, so as I understand it, you you trained originally as an environmental engineer, was that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, uh, almost almost a decade ago, now graduating <laughs> from that. Um, yeah, so I so I did a degree in environmental engineering and um, quite quite a broad degree. So, um, not not really specialising in any sort of industry, but more gaining an understanding of how to understand the environmental impacts that the projects have um, and also how to change designs um, to, to minimise environmental harm or to Im- enhance the environmental benefits um, and also how to sort of clean up after projects have either reached the end of their life cycle or uh, if something goes wrong, for example, you know, during a construction and, and you have a spill, um, just learning what what the sort of techniques are and and how to clean up after a, another engineer comes along and makes a mess. <laughs> <laughs> was this? I mean, was this always in in your current job as a renewable energy public servant? Was this always where you thought you'd end up, or did you have other career aspirations? Um, I always wanted to work on big problems, and I think climate change is one of the biggest problems that you could possibly work on. So, um, I I did imagine myself somewhere somewhere near this space um, but I've it's been a long road to actually get to to where I am at the moment um, I've had a lot of uh, other interesting career paths that have, have sort of taken me here well that's what you're here to talk about so tell us about your career path absolutely well um so I started off uh, out of uni my very first job um, was actually working in um, search engine optimization so we, I was working on a, a project to basically teach the artificial intelligence in search engines how to, to recognize more human, um, more difficult uh, things that people are actually looking for. So this was, uh, as I said, nearly a decade ago and artificial intelligence was not nearly as advanced as it is now. And so this kind of, the, the project that I was working on was really feeding in human information into into this search engine algorithm. How did you land there from environmental engineering? Because it sounds it sounds to me like environmental engineering had a very direct link into climate change, <laughs> and yet somehow you've ended up being the person who teaches Google how to be less robotic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, it was uh, an interesting time coming out of uni. So um, as you may be aware, 20, 2008 um, was when I was sort of mi- middle of my degree and that's when we had that global financial crisis. Mm. Um, and so the impact that that had specifically on the engineering sector globally um, was was huge. It, it basically put the brakes on everything. Um, the engineering industry, because it's a, because it's a global industry, it draws expertise from all over the all over the globe and those skills are transferable everywhere. So engineers generally go where the work is. And if there's not a lot of work going on across the, the globe, there's not a lot of work for people coming up and starting in the, uh, in the industry either. Mm. So I, I found it very challenging to break into the engineering field. Um, so I, I just sort of looked, cast my net wide and thought, thought back to my training and really thought, well, 
what have I what have I learned during my degree? Well, it's it's to solve problems. And and what's my problem right now? Well, I need I need a job that's gonna make me feel <laughs> fulfilled and also pay pay the bills. So, <laughs> so yeah, just looking looking for something a bit bit challenging, a bit different. And did did your obviously as your engineering degree helped you think about how to get a job? But did it actually help you with the job as as teaching a search engine? Absolutely, yeah. So so a lot of the um, the skills that I picked up in engineering, a lot of anal- analytical skills. Um, math skills, um, even communication skills. So really the whole package, all of the soft skills are all transferable um, and, and really just leveraged off that to, to make the most of the, the job that I had while okay. I was there. So how long were you a search engine teacher for? <laughs> yeah, so it ended up being a, a couple of years um, in, in that role. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was an experience. Mm. Um, so what, what, well, two questions, firstly, where'd you go next? But secondly, secondly, what actually made you leave that job? (laughs) Well, I I found that, um, a lot of jobs where you're a part of something bigger, uh, involve a lot of repetitive or process driven tasks. And I'm, I'm sort of more of a, um, a creative problem solving type. Um, you know, when you do the, uh, the personality profiles, I'm more focused on, or I, I, I find my passion in in solving problems creatively and differently every time. Um, so if if I'm in a in a role where I'm following process for a long period of time, I feel like I get very detached from the the you know the larger whole that I'm contributing towards. Um, so I, I sort of did feel a bit like, well, I'm not really advancing so much in this in this role and in this space. I'm not building on my skills. Um, and I ended up uh, deciding that I would go back to university and do some some research. So I, th- I thought, well, I'm really passionate about climate change still. Um, I'm really interested in energy and I, I love controversy. Um, <laughs> so I ended up taking up a master's research project into um, onshore unconventional gas exploration. What? Oh, okay, so so me pleading my ignorance here. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? Absolutely. So that it's, it's a very... Um, a, a, so cold steam gas is the the industry that really took off in in Queensland, um, where you sort of you drill a well on onshore, and you drill all the way down to where coal deposits are underneath un, under the ground, and you you basically take out all the water from that that coal seam, and then all the gas that's held within the coal seam starts flowing out your your well that you've dewatered, um, and so you 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 can send that gas down for residential use, or you can um, pump it down the pipes and uh, turn it into a very cold version of itself and, and turn it into liquid. Um, and then you can ship it off to, to other countries that are less energy rich than us. Right. So what was your research project about? Um, so building on my environmental engineering, engineering degree, um, I looked at basically the environmental impacts of the industry as a whole. Um, and I, I focused initially on the groundwater impact. So when you extract a whole lot of water from from the ground, there are obviously going to be impacts felt far and wide. Um, and, and these are typically areas where there's lots of agriculture going on. And when you're inland in Australia, you, you rely very heavily on groundwater for either use, using it for agricultural uses or even just personal use. If you live there and you're you're not getting rain for, for you know months at a time, you, you really need that secure groundwater supply. Right. Okay. Uh, did you come to any major conclusions that you're allowed to talk about? I guess. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so uh, 
I think a lot of the um, a lot of the more interesting things about the project that I undertook was the lack of transparent information. So when you have um, an industry that is is new, um, the regulation around it is generally um, pretty immature in the sense that they don't quite know what they're going to ask for uh, in terms of uh, you know things to monitor, things to look for. Because it's a new industry, you haven't had time to, to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Um, I, I guess a similar sort of thing with, with medicine where you, you know, you're trialling new drugs and you don't, don't necessarily know the long-term impacts until it's been you know, a long-term um, and you've, you've actually been able to watch people use, use that, that drug. So in, mm. in this case, um, you know, when you're dealing with underground water, it moves so slowly that the timescales you're, you're working with are, are decades or hundreds of years. Mm. Um, and so when, when you're trying to regulate a new industry, you know, set rules around how how much water you can extract and and how deep you can drill and how many wells you can put in it's pretty uncharted territory so it's it's um you're sort of learning as you go um and so a lot of the companies that are doing these activities are very not not secretive but a lot of the information is quite commercial um in nature so they don't want their competitors to to know the information that they're gathering um you know, in order to to maintain their competitive edge, and that's yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's I, I find uh, obviously you're speaking my language using the the drug comparison because I, I that that is really interesting. In that you know, I agree with drugs. You you do the testing to see if it works, but yes, whether or not it works doesn't necessarily reflect about what the the five to ten. Usually, they usually use a five to ten year reference point. What the five to ten year long term effects of the medication are going to be, and unfortunately, it's it's often one of those situations where you you only learn by doing. But it ha- it has to be out in the community and being used on a mass scale in order to be able to collect the data, which then you can use to determine whether or not it is effective and whether or not um, and what what a effects there may be that then determine its ongoing existence but um i guess in it, it's funny because in in medicine there is that expectation that that the data is there and it has to be monitored whether that's because of the way it's regulated or whether that's learned from previous behaviors where where you know drug companies may have been secretive um and then they they you know people paid the price and so rules were changed um, I mean, from from your experience with that research project, do you think we're at a point where the culture will change, where people will be more transparent? Um, I don't think so. I, I think <clears throat> I think structurally, the the profit motive is is always there, um, and it's very hard to regulate that away. Um, and, and and for instance, um, in, in lieu of in lieu of that that long term data. They, they rely very heavily on models and, and and again those models that they develop around how the how the groundwater system is going to respond to those you know the, the wells dewatering or um, you know actually drilling the holes in the first place um, a lot of those models are quite proprietary so a lot of smart people spend a lot of time putting them together and testing them out and then seeing how they work over the long term and respond to to real the real world um, how close they match and then adjust them as they go. And, and the, I guess the value in those models is how much they can make their model unique to other people's. Okay. Interesting. Um, so you did the research project. What came next? Um, so as straight out of that, I worked on the, uh, the NAPLAN. So the 
education uh, standardized testing that goes goes on across uh, across Australia. Um, so that was a sort of an in between job while I was uh, submitting my thesis and doing all the you know the final touches to my to my work. Um, did a few months uh, doing a, sort of a database reconciliation is the technical term for it, but basically finding holes in either student attendance or um, um, enrollment records and things like that. Um, so making sure that the the information that the the NAPLAN group, uh, the testers have, matches up with, with school records and things like that. I mean, you said you had a varied career, but this is insane. Because <laughs> that feels to me like it's more of um, a, an education issue. How, did, how would this fall under the category of engineering? Um, so I think a lot of the uh, the jobs I've had have, have been a, a result of uh, need rather than of passion. But uh, <laughs> certainly I, I found a lot of value out of... Um, you know, seeing behind the scenes about, you know, sort of how these these bigger projects, so the bigger undertakings that, that we do as a society, they work behind the scenes and, and who actually drives them. Which I guess, as you said, is part of the analytics. It's, it's the understanding of systems and then how they operate. I mean, one of the, one of the big drives for me doing this podcast at all was to uh, sort of wonder what people did with their, I mean, their memories, but what people did with their qualifications. I think that's what, why your story is really fascinating in that, you know, for most, so for example, um, so obviously I'm, I'm, a, I'm a doctor and I've used my, my medical degree to, to branch out my skills to do other things, but it's also within the doctor field. So they weren't completely different jobs. I didn't go take my medical degree and become a lawyer. Like it just, it, it, I would have to do more study in order to get to that point. But it's interesting that you, you took your degree, which had a very, quite, quite a specific focus and a specific passion and used it to obtain other jobs that, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't imagine that your NAPLAN job was an entry-level job. Like it, it, it would require some degree of skill and, and experience in order to demonstrate to the employer that, hey, actually, I have the right, um, I have the right experience, I have the right training and mentality to be able to complete this job. So that's, I, I guess that's why I wonder how, although, yes, it was out of necessity, I, I kind of wonder how your engineering degree somehow led you to that job. Yeah, so one of the the core requirements of that job was an understanding of how databases work and an understanding of how data is collected and uh, statistics and how to utilize data in a sort of statistically relevant way and and analyze that data in a, in a way that provides meaningful results to either policymakers or to um, the education sector in this case on on you know how students are tracking and how they're performing overall. Yeah, which and, and certainly that makes sense. I guess um, where where I want this these these episodes to be beneficial is to teach people who are in the early stages of their education, whether they be in high school or, or university, or even if they're thinking of changing their careers, how even if they have a particular focus or something that they want to be per se they can still use their skills elsewhere. And so that's, again, you're, you're an interesting case of that where even though in climate change and environment was your initial passion, and I do want to come back to that eventually, um, yeah, you still took those skills and, and got use out of them, even if it wasn't exactly where you wanted to be and it wasn't what you wanted to do long-term. You still found a way to make it work for you rather than, again, going to an entry-level 
retail or a job, mm. you know, because yeah. because yeah. if we're talking about need, you one would argue that if you really needed to just have a job, you could have gone and done something really required no training at all. Mm. Yeah, look, and I, I think one of the things that was stressed during my degree from a lot of people that um, sort of filled that mentor role was you've really got to think about the soft skills that you're developing in your specialization. So even if you're training to be an environmental engineer, a civil engineer that builds bridges or um, you know any other specialty, you're picking up a whole range of skills that are actually, they are, they are the selling point. So when you're specializing in something, you're, you're competing with everyone else who has that specialization. Um, and you need to find reasons why you're special. You're special for that job that anyone with your training can do. Um, and I think a lot of the things that were stressed were build on those soft skills and keep finding opportunities that, that help you grow as a person, um, whether it's developing specific skills or whether it's you know developing an interesting story about your life and, and the experiences that you had and think about, well, how can you continue to bring that forward and build on those, those experiences that you've had? So talking about experience, moving on from NAPLAN, what came next? Yeah, so once we once we wrapped up the submission and um, acceptance of my thesis, um, I moved up to Canberra and I was lucky enough to secure a job at the um, uh, in in Parliament House. So um, one of the departments there advises politicians, so uh, members and senators, on um, a variety of issues. They have subject matter experts in a whole range of things. So I I really that was the first job that I that I got that really utilized those special skills that I developed during my um, training. So advising um, senators and members who are interested on both climate change more broadly, but more specifically on coal seam gas, the issue of coal seam gas, which at the time was quite not poorly understood by the public, but certainly it wasn't a huge um, a huge area of attention except for in sort of the localised area where it was a lot more contentious. Okay. Um, as I guess part of part of it is, part of bringing your knowledge into it is also education. So being able to educate these politicians who, who yeah, who, who don't necessarily have the industrial experience to understand it, to be able to put it together. I mean, how did you, how did you utilise your skills to be able to fulfil your role? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean... Um, politicians come from all ranges of, of backgrounds um, and all kinds of educations and, and they all bring with them their own special interests. But um, in order to communicate really complex and specific scientific topics um, to an audience that wants to know enough about it to be confident in their decisions that they're making, um, but communicating in a way that is is plain English that anyone could theoretically understand um and really focusing on what are the key takeaways what are the key what's what's the story that i need to know as a policy maker or a decision maker um in in government you know how does this how does this affect my constituency for example if i come from a particular state or a particular seat that is impacted by this issue how how do i need to respond to it or how can, how can i respond to it what are my options um and what is what is the story that I need to tell to to have my vision of either policy or um, an argument that I want to have as a politician with my party, for example, to shape you know where where it heads? What what information do I need to be armed with? Um, 
And you you, uh, you mentioned sort of early on the importance, uh, uh, no, the the impact of being able to influence policy at, at sort of the higher levels. Was that always an aspiration for you to get to the point of policy influence? Um, yeah. So I, I think the thing that appealed to me initially about environmental engineering more broadly was that if you're able to get into a project and shape the decisions based around evidence, so for example, a, a a pipeline that's being built, a water pipeline, and you're able to say, well, let's divert the pipeline a little bit because there's this endangered species here or the, the you know, the regulations identifies this particular um, area of land that is, um, you know, of significance and it would cost this much to divert it and we, we would get this benefit. So I guess the the, the interest for me there was was really utilizing evidence and using good scientific methods and but also communicating that and synthesizing that into a into a language that's not just speaking to academics it's really speaking to policymakers and the general public and helping them understand the issue as a teenager now that we've segued nicely into it as a teenager what what inspired you to become an environmental engineer in the first place i think i think it goes not just back to my teenage years but really Really, to my um, you know very early childhood, we we grew up in the uh, the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria, so um, quite a quite connected to nature, and so a lot of a lot of my fondest memories have been you know being exposed to to the natural environment and enjoying the space with with you know friends and family, um, and that sort of um, being in those the the community there. A lot of the the things that bring you together, because everything is very individualistic and, and everyone's very rugged and they want their own space, but what brings a community like that together is is adversity or, or hardship or a common foe. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, so for for instance, um, in the in the Dandenong Ranges, we had a, a few bushfires coming that came through a, a few years in a row. Um, and that really bring hardship really brings communities together and things like development. Um, so one of the the local quarries had a an ongoing feud with basically the the locals on on their expansion and and that really that influenced my view of you know what's what's out there you know when I grow up what do I want to be well there's this environmental engineer that comes and speaks to the, uh, the you know the local community at council meetings and says this this proposal is going to have this impact and. Um, you, you know, the local community should support it because it's it's you know going to bring all these jobs and and so on. And and despite that effort, um, you know, it's there, there's a sales pitch that goes on there, right? And I always thought like, well, someone can do a better job of selling projects or making the effort to like to minimize the environmental impact or to to seek ways to like maximize the environmental benefits of the projects that we're doing because we're always gonna we want to we want to build things we want to exist in a you know in our houses and and in our society we we need things and we're always going to come up against the environment that we live in and we're always going to want to shape it and change it in certain ways but we want to maintain the value there so i think that's a really interesting space to, to sort of work in you know playing off those two two priorities there 
It's fascinating to me that, I mean, there are two things. One, the fact is it sounds like you were a child who attended council meetings, which is really astounding to me. Um, the second thing is that um, as as I think a, a lot of us, should, well, we should be teaching our kids, but a lot of us try to do is you, you married together two really interesting passions. Because on the one hand, one would argue that as an environmental engineer, you could be a... Um, I guess a cog in the machine. You could be the person sort of driving the system and and, and put being a behind the scenes person. But your inspiration was more about, well, inspiration. It was more about trying to uh, communicate to people. Uh, I mean, and again, it was it, it's not well, not that it wasn't about creating systems, but it was about being able to uh, market essentially a good idea. Yeah, and I, and I I think it took me a while to to acknowledge that side of, of my passion. So when, when I was at uni, it was all about the, the designs and the problem solving and less about the, the human side. But as I've sort of grown into a number of roles, I've really found that the human side of things, whether it's the relationships with the colleagues you have or shaping the opinion of other people, either through informing them or through using sort of those strategies to convince people of your point of view, I've really found that that those two are quite important to me together, not just one or the other. Did you find that that desire to to communicate and influence people came out in other ways? Like, were you ever like a, a good uh, a speech speech maker, or were you ever into drama? No, I, I was always a, a very shy kid growing up. Um, I've I've never had. You know, much like with public speaking, I always found it very, very nerve-wracking to to speak, even to to unfamiliar people. So, just speaking to tr- strangers growing up used to be a daunting task. Even trying new things growing up was something that you know I always struggled with. So, um, I think of the way I sort of um, overcame that, I guess, block was by forcing myself to do it by putting myself in in you know new and interesting. Um, situations and actually over, overcoming that fear and of, of either failure or of something going wrong and just not worrying so much about you know the preconceived outcome and and really focusing on on the moment and enjoying you know what you're doing. I think it can get really easy to be bogged down in the idea of um, preparation and anticipation. I, I know that I've learned. I guess it's similar to you. What I've learned about myself is that I am often better. I'm often more functional if I actually do it rather than plan it. Because if I spend too long planning something or preparing for it, I often get bogged down in the details and I end up overthinking. And essentially, because no situation is ever perfect, I get too fixated on the things that could go wrong and I end up doing nothing. Um, yep. So it is. It is interesting how you've you've taken you've you also learned that about yourself somewhere, and you've taken that and just sort of push yourself forward. Yeah, and I, and I think that's sort of helped me come to a realization that I'm not I'm not so you know interested in the detail. I'm more interested in the bigger picture, and I'm more interested in those results and and like changing things or seeing things for what they are in that bigger picture, rather than just focusing on my little patch of grass. So on that, do do you where do you see your career heading from this point? I mean, again, obviously your career has been fairly varied and, and taken the same skills and done a few different things, but is there something you aspire to be? Um nothing specific. I think 
the space where I'm working in is is more important to me. I think some of the some of the things I'm really keen on exploring a little bit more is is negotiation. So I've, I've found in my current role that being exposed to a problem that actually involves two different parties with two competing interests and coming to a solution together collaboratively is is really that's something that's difficult to do and something that I feel really passionate about now that I've been exposed to it. Um, so I, I think building more on those skills of, of bringing people together and collaborating on solutions to really big problems um, because the kind of problems that we have as a society, as a globe, are too big for one person to, to really tackle on their own. Uh, and the, there is an art to mediation. There is an art to being able to to balance things out. Uh, and while um, while obviously there is some degree of responsibility on the parties that are in contention to be willing to compromise, I think yeah, being able to I, I agree. I think having that skill of negotiation, being able to marry those things together, is is a, a unique kind of skill. While it sounds like you have um, uh, the opportunity to gain that experience uh, naturally through your job, are there any avenues by which you could expand on that? Oh, absolutely. So I think the thing that really opened up my eyes to to negotiating in the first place was not just the exposure to it in, in my workplace, but, but reading books um, and listening to people talk about their passion for negotiating and the things that they've accomplished through negotiation um not just you know getting a better price on a car for example that's always the common example (laughs) but like bringing two people that disagree together and finding common ground and finding a solution how uh, i mean there are there are people within the law for that of course because they call conciliators and mediators to try and reconcile legal matters but i mean is there a course for this kind of stuff? Are there, are there things that you could, you know, does your job offer extra training to, to help you with this? Mm, um, yeah, it does. Um, so given that I, I sort of work for a large organization that does a lot of different things, um, one of the things that comes, one of the benefits that comes from working for a large organization is that you have a lot of um, things that you need to buy. So um, one of the functions that, purchasers or procurers have is that they need to go and talk to suppliers so they need to go and identify who can provide this product that we need whether it's pencils or whether it's a huge bit of equipment or a giant solar farm or a giant wind farm who can who can actually deliver this thing we want to buy or support um, and how can we negotiate with them to get a good either a good price or some other thing that we value as an organization so typically it would be things like local jobs or local investment or if we're not just trying to build the thing but trying to build a whole industry around that thing and use this as a launching pad how can we set up future successes through this this process that we're undertaking I mean, at, while sort of early on you did say that the reason why you moved f- from Canberra to Melbourne, amongst other reasons, was because you wanted that more hands-on contact. It almost sounds to me like you're gearing up to be a politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is not this is not where I'm going to you know announce my run officially or anything <laughs> like that. No, <laughs> no, I, th- I think um, so. The the reason I guess politics keeps coming up is that no matter what you're working on. Politics is really 
is the driving force that you can't avoid. No matter how technical your area is, whether it's medicine, whether it's education, whether it's um, the environment, whether it is um, roads and bridges and buildings, everything comes up against politics, um, whether it's regulation or whether it's policymakers themselves. And you can solve that problem two ways. You can either become such an expert that no policymaker is going to ignore you Mm. or you can be involved in that process yourself, whether it's through the public service or through political parties themselves. I often find, when, when, I, when I sort of think about these sorts of things, I, I, I'm not going to say I have sympathy for politicians, but I certainly do uh, understand the, the grand scale by which you have to conceptualize things. And it can be very hard to, um, to understand the, pol- uh, the, the various issues in enough detail to formulate an educated opinion. And I always feel like the, the more community-based um, interventions, all the community-based um, uh, movements. Uh, there's a better word for it. I can't think of it, but I, I find they seem to have a greater and more positive impact. Like what you're doing, working with local communities, uh, trying to rather than trying to change the system, which I think it's important. There's there are people out there who want to change the system, but being able to actually have an impact on the ground, uh, I, I would actually find really more satisfying than being being in federal politics, particularly. Mm. Yeah, look, incredibly satisfying, and I think. The thing that I remind myself every day in my current job is, you know, I might be, I might be, you know, filling out a report on our project or doing a, a transactional bit of work that is, is really business as usual. And for me, that's not going to, that's not what I get up in the morning for. But if I remind myself that that's really enabling those hundreds of people and thousands of people potentially in the future to be working and making a living off something that is also transforming our sort of whole energy system and the way that we power our lights and our podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, is, is this what you envisage doing for the rest of your life? Something, something in this space. I don't know if this specific job that I'm doing right now is, is what I'm, you know, is what I was born to do. Mm. Um, but certainly I feel a lot of, fulfillment in my current space that I'm working in and I think I'll always want to be I'll always be drawn to to big projects that that feeling that you you get when you drive past something that you know you've contributed to or you you see you know the benefits affecting real people so if you meet somebody who has made a career out of the project that you've helped support and help enable then that's that that's what makes it all worth it uh, you, you talked a bit before about admin, which again, every every job has some degree of uh, rudimentary or, or frustrating kind of parts of it. But are there any particularly challenging features of whether we talk about your specific job now or whether your career in general? Are there any things that you find challenging? I think the most challenging part is the 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 high pressure environment. So things are always things are always overdue no matter no matter where you're working everything is always overdue and there's always a hundred things that are overdue right now and you need to to balance those priorities um and so to to overcome that challenge of what do i work on right now i've only got you know i've only got eight hours in my day 
what am I going to, you know, spend my time on and how, how much time am I going to spend on doing it before it's good enough um, so that I can continue working on the next thing, which is overdue. Um, and, and really, I think one of the big skills that, that you need to develop is, is communication. And the biggest part of that is, is the listening part. So really identifying, you know, with either with your boss or with the, the person who's asking you for these hundred things that are, that are overdue, really what, what's important to them, what, what drives them and what's going to be the most important thing for you to work on right now to make a difference, to make their lives easier, to make your lives, your life easier. Uh, I, interestingly on that, one of the things I've learned uh, working in mental health is the, one of the biggest challenges to overcome within sort of internally more than externally is the idea of expectations. So expectations of yourself and expectations of other people. And often that's where, um, that's where contention lies. So when one, when, so using that example, if your boss expects you to finish a job within a week, let's just arbitrarily say, um, but that was never feasible. And you're right. Communication is really valuable because unless you tell them, actually, that's never going to happen. Can you give me a, a more reasonable time frame? Um, and then, then at least even if they're, disappointed at least everyone's on the same page and so often i find that alleviates a lot of frustration and disappointment when everyone's expectations are set at the same level Mm, it does and i think often the people that are asking you for something have been asked themselves for something and whether or not they're communicating that or whether they have the tools or the the evidence to communicate back that what the person is asking them is unreasonable it helps if you communicate to the person asking you what is what is realistic, what is achievable, and if your boss is telling you to work on something that you can't you can't achieve, you you need to communicate that in a in a positive way and say, I really I really want to help you. I want I want to do what what you know what my job is supposed to be doing is is delivering this thing, but I just can't do it in the in the time frame that we need it done by what how can we how can we solve that together is it is it something that you know we can um i guess everyone's familiar with the the, you know the time quality price conundrum is it something that we can put more resources on is it something that we can have you know sort of a um not a drop in quality but you know how do you balance those things in a in a constructive way to get the outcome that you want yes and i think as much as I think as much as we'd like to all think that we can do everything for cheap with high quality, the reality is that the sacrifice has to happen somewhere. Um, it's it, but it's about yeah deciding where where that sacrifice has to happen because there are a finite amount of resources, there are a finite amount of money, material, time, uh, people power, and so you have to just figure out what is uh, what is most important to you, I guess. Mm. Um, it, I I wonder just as we're talking, I started thinking about the idea of um, management. So it seems to me that again, one of the as part of your desire, not desire, your your interest in negotiation. I, I imagine that skill would be quite appealing for people who wanted you in a managerial position. Um, I find that in in medicine particularly, that's like while being able to interact with people is a skill. Management is kind of a a sidestep in terms of career, but for you, would it? Would you say that having that managerial talent is actually beneficial? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think maybe if I take a step back as well and think, 
more big picture, which I tend to do very often, the, the skills that we develop to work with other people and, and how we adapt to working with other people is something that a machine is not going to come around and, and replace anytime soon. So if, if I think more broadly, you know, how do I make myself important and um, how do I, I guess, how do I maximize my own value to future, future employees? I, th- I think about, well, how, how am I setting myself up to interact with other people and how am I making myself a indisposable person that is not just something that can be done by, by a robot or a computer or a piece of software? Um, and I think, I mean, that's one of the, the things that people are going to have to grapple with as well is, is not just, you know, what do I do when I finish uni, but how do I continue to learn and develop as a person in order to not get stuck in a place where I'm just replaced by a, by a robot or a machine that can do the same tasks that I'm doing, but do it quicker because they don't need to eat or sleep or, you know, they, they don't make mistakes. Well, yeah, yeah they might, but, <laughs> but, but we can blame it on the programming and yep, <laughs> just yep. move on rather than firing the computer. Um, and I guess that's the difference there. A computer you can edit and replace with great ease. Human replacement is possible, but education might be a little bit different, I think. Mm. Um, so I guess on, on, on that idea, how for any you know aspiring engineers or environmental engineers or how far you want to go, are there things that you would have wanted to know when you were studying to have prepared you for your for you know your future and to to prepare what you know now? Hmm. I, th- I think the biggest and hardest reality coming out of uni was that you're not guaranteed a job just because of your special skills. You're not guaranteed a job because you've got a, a bachelor in this or a bachelor in that. Um, you really need to have something that sets you apart from everyone else who is trying to do exactly the same thing as you. And I think not not resting on your laurels and also not not tethering yourself to a, you know, a perfect picture of your first career out of uni and what it's going to be. I think keeping your options open to other opportunities as they come up because no matter what you end up doing your I guess your value as a person is not defined by whether or not you got that you know that dream job you had after uni or whether or not you're on the career tra- trajectory you you thought you would be on um, you know you need to just make the most of where you are right now and the opportunities that you have and consider yourself worthy of you know you're you're a person and you're contributing to society no matter what your your role is no matter whether or not you've you've you know used your degree for that perfect job you wanted or whether or not you're using it for something else that's that's you know making the lives of people better or um just existing is is enough that's uh, that's that's firstly beautifully said um and and in i guess it's 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 interesting, I guess. For 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 me, I I always think of myself as a uh, goal oriented person. In that, when I when I do something, I want to make sure it has value. And I I think I would I would struggle with what you're saying. I mean, I I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely agree. Um, and 
but it's it's hard, you know. I, I, for some people, I if if there's anyone out there like me, it'll be really hard to think that you will have invested however many years it does it is to do an engineering degree and come out of it thinking you know will i use i mean not not even necessarily will i use this for my for its intended purpose but will i get to use it at all and how do i go about using it because it, it seems to me that the way you the, the the avenues by which you explore that you explored in order to use your degree were were not necessarily obvious like they weren't things that you would have been mapped out for you it was almost it was almost accidental I and mean, would you agree yeah and I, I think a lot of people when they look back, will actually think that they they will they will realize that nothing is nothing is predetermined, and you're not set on a particular trajectory. The opportunities that open up for you are things that happen every day, and the choices that you make every day are not just about which degree you chose to do and where you happen to to do it, which university you studied with, which school you went to. Those things are not predetermined, and really coming to terms with i guess rejection from from you know your perfect image of where your career is going to go is something that everyone overcomes in different ways and comes to terms with but i think that that always comes back to to fulfillment and and personal um personal satisfaction with where you're you're up to you know in your career or in your life and how you how you find that that meaning and, and value from what whatever you happen to be doing. Mm. Uh, all right. That was really interesting. Thank you, Rowan. Uh, I was uh, yeah, actually I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one last little curveball out there just because I'm kind of fascinated. <laughs> what 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 do you think is um, uh, the average person can do to try and help with climate change? Hmm. I think the best thing you can do is have conversations. It's it's not something that we're going to solve by everybody switching off their lights or everybody switching to having solar panels on their roof or changing changing just their personal behavior. It's all about how we come together as a society, whether it's in our communities or whether it's more broadly. It it's all about the conversations that we're having. So we, if you if you want to change the policy that you know exists in a certain jurisdiction if it's the state level the federal level or even the local level get in touch with the people that are making the decisions and let them know what you think and let the can, can convince other people and get in touch with other people that either share your views or don't share your views you know just have conversations beautiful uh that's that's a great way to end a conversation thanks for coming on the show ron thanks for having me paul uh all right so uh thank you listeners for sticking around i hope that was enlightening and maybe even inspired you to uh be more active in having conversations and uh talking about what is an exceptionally pertinent and uh and concerning issue uh so thanks for listening be sure to listen to our other episodes and be inspired and, and learn about what the other half does uh thanks for listening uh stay tuned for the next episode and remember there are no small jobs only jobs you haven't discovered yet <laughs>